Costume Drama Rewind. I'm Megan Jett, and I'm excited that this week's movie is proving my theory that Rufus Sewell is basically in everything. I'm Laura Skog, and I'm excited to be almost done cleaning the can of LaCroix Megan just sprayed on me. Thanks! Sorry! (laughs) This week, we're headed all the way back to the Middle Ages as set to the music of ACDC and David Bowie with the cult favorite A Knight's Tale. Released in 2001, it was directed by Brian Hegland and stars Heath Ledger, Mark Addy, Rufus Sewell, Shannon Sosman, Paul Bettany, and Alan Tudyk. The film opens with lowly peasant squire William, played by Heath Ledger and his friends Roland, Mark Addy, and Watt, played by Alan Tudyk, realizing that their knight has just died after getting wounded in a jousting tournament. Rather than let that stop them, William dons the armor and competes as the dead knight, winning the prize by sheer luck. He convinces Roland and Watt that they should continue this in order to get rich, and we get a montage of them all training. Eventually, they come across Geoffrey Chaucer, who agrees to create a fake patent of nobility so William can enter into a tournament that's just for nobility. Chaucer becomes William's frontman along the way. As the movie progresses, William begins winning tournaments and getting popular. He meets the film's antagonist, Count Adamar, none other than Rufus Sewell, who he clashes with on the jousting field and in the fight for the affections of a noble woman named Jocelyn, played by Shannon Sossman. Additionally, in one event, he allows a Sir Thomas Colville to withdraw unharmed from the event. Eventually, William and the team head to England for the World Championships, and yes, it should be clear by now that this movie is trying to show jousting as the medieval equivalent of today's sports. Uh, And William reconnects with his father, and he shows him how far he's risen. I cried. She did. Tons. Our baddie, Adamar, is stalking him and finds out uh, about his parentage, so he has the authorities arrest William for posing as a noble. William is put in the stocks, but oh wait, Thomas Colville shows up, and he is actually Edward the Black Prince. He knights William, who is then able to participate in the championship against Adamar. Adamar cheats with a tipped lance, injuring William, who ends up having to ride without his armor as a result, but he beats Adamar, winning the competition. As the movie ends... Chaucer muses about writing these events down. So, Laura, what were your first impressions? Well, a few weeks ago, one of my friends on Facebook referred to the Georgia Renaissance Festival as being medieval cosplay. And that's basically what this movie is. It's not meant to be serious at all about the Middle Ages. It's not meant to be all that accurate. Uh, The women's costumes, especially those inexplicable feather hair decoration things, uh, they're like the living embodiment of all the BuzzFeed articles you see about, you grew up in the 90s if you wore these fashion trends. (laughs) The armor is not exactly what they had in the 1370s, and I'm pretty sure Heath Ledger is actually wearing khaki pants from the Gap this entire time. (laughs) Uh, It's really a sports movie, and it uses the Middle Ages uh, for entertainment. But I also don't have the same sort of nostalgic love for this movie that a lot of people our age do, but I also just watched it for the first time back in June. So what you say about medieval cosplay is exactly why I have a complicated relationship with Renaissance festivals for all that I hail from Maryland, home of the nation's best, which announced today that it is canceled for this season, probably to avoid having every single person show up dressed as a plague doctor. Look, I love a turkey leg as much as anyone, but all the anachronisms and the conflating of 500 years of history, and you just end up with me running after people in fairy wings yelling at them. And the stormtroopers. And the stormtroopers I can live with. That said, despite the fact that I was exactly the target audience for this film, I was a 14-year-old girl when it was released. Like Laura, I had never actually seen it, and it took me a little bit of time to lean into its delightful absurdity. So let's get right down to the heart of the matter. The point of using a historical backdrop for this story seems to be showing the similarities in culture throughout the eras. Jasper popular sporting events with qualifying tournaments, just like today, 
even if they didn't call themselves world championships. Uh, with the music, according to IMDb, the director deliberately, quote-unquote, uses modern music in the movie to show modern audiences what people then felt about their music, end quote. In addition to playing these tunes, there are also references to Beatles' lyrics and things the band said in concert, and the men's costumes as the film progresses are meant to look like the Rolling Stones' 1972 concert outfits. And I especially love the coat that Paul Bettany was wearing. But what were historic tournaments like? As depicted in the movie, they were great social gatherings, often attached to events like the weddings of nobles, and they featured after-parties, dances, lots of vendors selling their wares. In addition to the one-on-one -on -one jousting that we see, they also had the melee, which was teams of horsemen fighting fake battles. In Tilting, a knight would try to get his lance through a series of metal rings while riding on horseback. And as the movie also shows, there were one-on-one -on -one fights on foot. Dr. Natalie Anderson at Medievalists.net mentions that the movie does a good job with showing accurate detail about the tournaments. She says that a lot of tournaments did require proof of noble ancestry, and you could also hit the images of different events to show what you wanted to compete in. She also notes that there was a famous knight named William Marshall who got his helmet stuck on his head, and that Heath Ledger using this excuse not to reveal his identity during the first tournament is a likely homage. Dr. Anderson specializes in the role of tournaments in medieval society, and you can find a link to her work through her Twitter, which is at Dr. McAnderson. So the bit I found most compelling about this movie is actually Geoffrey Chaucer, and not just because Paul Bettany is super charming in the role Amen. and appears to be having the time of his life. So historians tell us that Chaucer had a bit of a lost year. He travels to France to take part in the Hundred Years' War. He gets captured and then ransomed and then sort of wanders around the continent for six months to a year. And nobody really knows where he is or what he's doing during this time. And historians have never really been able to account for those years. So the filmmakers tell us that this could be one explanation for what he got up to during that time. Obviously. And the film is full of sly little winks to the Canterbury Tales. At one point, Chaucer gets held up for a gambling debt by a corrupt partner and summoner. He promises to get his revenge with his pen and make them infamous in literature and... Of course, Canterbury Tales features the partner's tale and the summoner's tale, neither of whom come out very well from those stories. And then, of course, at the end, when he remarks that he should record Sir William Thatcher's story, the lead story in the Canterbury Tales is, in fact, the knight's tale, though it is a very different story that does not involve Heath Ledger or really bear any resemblance to what happens here. But Chaucer is a really fun figure in history. He comes to prominence as a civil servant to King Edward III and then marries into the fringes of the royal family. His second wife, Philippa, is a sister to Catherine Swinford, who is mistress and then wife to John of Gaunt, King Edward's fourth child and the founder of the House of Lancaster. So Chaucer rises from a family of merchants hailing from the town of Ipswich to the highest echelons of English society, largely on his own merits. My favorite little trivia fact about him is that as a reward for his talents as a writer, as the first really poet laureate of the English court, the king grants him a gallon of wine a day for the rest of his life. Sadly for Chaucer, though fortunately perhaps for his liver, this perk only lasts four years before Richard II comes to the throne and is apparently a lot less fun because he converts it from a wine grant to a cash grant. Also, Sir Ulrich von Liechtenstein, William's fake identity, turns out to be a real person too. Uh, however, Gelderland, where Heath Ledger claims to hail from, is now part of the Netherlands and it's nowhere near Liechtenstein, 
which is between Switzerland and Austria. I think you just really like saying Liechtenstein. Liechtenstein, yeah. Uh, not much is known about him, but he was involved in politics. He wrote Frau Dienst, a semi-autobiographical tale in which he wins numerous jousts and goes to all sorts of absurd heights to try winning his lady's love. The lady in question actually has no intention of getting with him, and at one point his wife shows up. And he has to contend with a character named Hadamar, which in using the French pronunciation, I guess, would be Adamar, just like our antagonist Rufus Sewell. Also definitely a real person who shows up here. Edward the Black Prince. He comes off pretty well in this movie as a font of all the chivalric virtues. He's interesting to me as one of those people who, had he lived longer, history might have looked very different. His nickname comes from one or both of two potential sources. One, that his armor may have been forged in black steel, and two, that he earned a reputation for being pretty ruthless on campaign against the French during the Hundred Years' War. He's trusted by his father, King Edward III, from a fairly young age with military and diplomatic leadership, and he's the first person to be created Prince of Wales and Duke of Cornwall, which remains the title of the heir apparent to the British throne. Prince Charles! Unfortunately, so much time spent on campaign in France breaks his health by the time he's in his mid-40s, and he dies of dysentery at Westminster Palace, leaving his son Richard to inherit the throne, which he does just a year after his father's death at the age of 10. King Richard II, who suffered from what some historians have identified as borderline personality disorder, is not a notably great king. His overreaches lead to his overthrow by friend of the podcast, King Henry IV, the first king of the House of Lancaster. In that way, the Black Prince's early death really paves the way for the Wars of the Roses, which might well not have occurred otherwise, and which lead to all sorts of fun consequences that would spool out over the next couple hundred years. But there's one other place where the Black Prince's legacy lives on, and it's front and center every year during the state opening of Parliament. And no, I am not talking about the Queen's handbag. One of the oldest and most prominent stones in the Imperial State Crown is a 170-carat gem known as the Black Prince's Ruby. It's given to him as a thank-you gift for intervening in a war in which he had no business in present-day Spain on the side of a dude named Don Pedro the Cruel. Name checks out. It's supposed to have been embedded in the helmet that Henry V wore at Agincourt, which worked out pretty well for him, and then the helmet that Richard III wore at Bosworth, which worked out a lot less well for him. Anyway, the ruby turns up on the Tudor crown, is briefly lost during the Commonwealth when most of the regalia is destroyed, it's located during the Restoration, and has been part of the crown jewels ever since. So next time you watch the state opening of Parliament, I am just making a leap here and assuming that if you're the kind of person who listens to podcasts about historical dramas, the state opening of Parliament is a big feature on your calendar. Wave hello to the Black Prince and remember his kindness to our hero, Heath Ledger. So now the big question. How many hats? And this week, we are rating out of inexplicable feather hair decorations from Claire's. Laura? I'm going with uh, 3.5 out of 5 inexplicable feather hair decorations from Claire's that I probably wanted at some point during the 90s. When I watched the movie for the first time, I was pretty weirded out by certain anachronisms. Like, I was fine with the music, that was fun. But I felt that when it came to the women's costumes, it seemed more just careless instead of a well-thought-out anachronism. But I did have one real sticking point issue with the movie, 
I felt that Lady Jocelyn was manipulative in her relationship with William, particularly when she insisted that he deliberately lose in one tournament to show his love for her, because everyone knew back then that the tournament was where a knight might either make his fortune or completely lose it. Uh, Or kick the bucket. Yeah. So for her to do that, she basically had himself put had him put himself in total harm's way. Um, Rude. Yes. But it really could just be an homage to the actual Sir Ulrich's work, though. But overall, it's a fun movie, and I like that they did little historical Easter eggs, like using the names of real people for off-screen characters. So, this is one movie where the number of inexplicable feather hair decorations that I wish to award definitely changed with more exposure. The first time I watched this movie was over Memorial Day weekend this year, and it was so different from what I expected, having known nothing about it, that I couldn't get past it at first. And I'm pretty sure at some point I rage-texted Laura, thanks, I hate it! You're welcome! But then I kind of leaned into the Monty Python of it all on second viewing, and I ended up really liking it. It doesn't take itself too seriously, but it gets in some decent historical points that are cleverly woven in, and I'm also not strong enough to resist the boyish appeal of a young Heath Ledger. So, all that said, I am going to award this movie three and a half inexplicable feathered hair decorations and a historic first for this podcast where Laura and I actually agree on something. Who's up? So finally, a few sundry other notes. As I mentioned a few seconds ago, in addition to Geoffrey Chaucer and the Black Prince, other names thrown out during the movie are those of real people like Piers Courtney and Roger Mortimer. Which is actually pretty awkward, since the most famous person in English history named Roger Mortimer was the lover of the Black Prince's grandmother, Queen Isabella, and together those two conspired to depose and murder her husband, Edward II, uh, the Black Prince's grandfather, possibly with a burning hot poker in the bum. So, uh, moving on to uh, women in trade. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) uh, Kate the Blacksmith's story is pretty standard for women in the trade during the medieval era in Europe. Uh, Basically, she's the widow of a blacksmith. Generally, women in that field were the wives, daughters, or siblings of male blacksmiths. An illumination in the Holcomb Bible from around 1327 shows a woman helping her husband at the forge. And the website, Working the Flame, which compiles article about smithing, notes that during the 1300s, guilds, quote-unquote, began inviting widowed wives of craftsmen to continue running the family business in their husband's place, end quote. And this is actually something that I learned from approximately 4,000 lifetime trips to Colonial Williamsburg. They have a number of women working in their trade shops, including heavier trades like blacksmithing, and they always get questions about whether that's accurate, and the answer is always yes. So one of my favorite little details about this movie were the sweeping shots of medieval London, which looked to have been created with models rather than digitally. But you can pick out some recognizable landmarks like the Tower of London and Old St. Paul's, and as a fun little joke, the London Eye, which would have just opened at the time that this movie came out. And if you, like me, love that kind of thing, you should check out the website layersoflondon.org, where you can overlay all kinds of historic maps of the city from different eras and fiddle around with how things have changed over time. And on your reading list for this week, we have Sir Ulrich's Frau Dienst. We also have the history of William Marshall and, of course, the Canterbury Tales. And as mentioned last week, in our tally of actors in historic films, 
Rufus Sewell showed up again this week, and Heath Ledger is now at two. So we want to thank you all for your support. We've been having a lot of fun watching these movies and learning more about the worlds that they depict. Uh, But seeing the kind reviews and feedback from everyone, including those of you who aren't our mothers, has been extra special. Next week, there have been lots of jokes about how when we all said we were excited to relive the 1920s, this was not what we meant. Well, buckle up, because we are headed right into the belly of the beast with the 2013 version of The Great Gatsby. This is Costume Drama Rewind. Thanks for listening.